Welcome to Rooftop Church. This podcast is part of our Sunday sermon series, where each week we dive into the Word of God and the powerful message of Christ. Um, Today we are concluding our Back to Basics sermon series. You know, for the past three months, we've been in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, uh, focusing on the foundational practices of the early church in Jerusalem. And I really hope um, for those of you that took part in the block meetings every month as you were applying these foundational practices together as a block, I really hope that you were encouraged and that you were blessed. How many of you guys took part in your block meetings, okay? Um, Just by a raise of hands and a holler, was that an encouragement to you? Was that a blessing for you guys to get together? I know that um, some of you I heard had some pretty bomb food, so that's always good, right? Um, But before moving on into the last and final practice of the foundational practice found in Acts chapter 2, let me just provide you a short recap of what we've been going over for the past couple of months. So in the month of June, we focused on the importance of devoting ourselves to the Word of God, right? And then in July, we talked about the importance of fellowship with one another as a church. And we also talked about how fellowship practically boils down to one thing, it's loving one another. Last month, in the month of August, we talked about the importance of prayer, and we looked at the account of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Today, as we conclude this series, we'll be focusing on the topic or the practice of worship. Hence, I had Pastor Daniel come up here because I thought he was just the right guy to do the interview. I think he would have been the right guy to do the preaching, but because he said no, at least do the interview, right? Um, You know, we read in Acts chapter 2, verses 46 to 47, it'll be on the board. It says, day by day, Continuing with one mind, this is the church again, the early church in Jerusalem, in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to the number day by day those who were being saved. We read in this passage that the early church was continuing day by day to meet together in the temple. What were they doing? They were devoting themselves to Scripture. They were devoting themselves to prayer. And then after that, we read that they were meeting in homes, that they were breaking bread together. What were they doing there? They were fellowshipping. They're remembering the sacrifice that Jesus has made through the sacrament of communion. And in verse 47, we read that the early church, as they met day by day, what were they doing? They were praising God together. Can we turn to our neighbors today and tell them they praise God together? Tell your neighbor today, they praise God together. Okay, I'm glad that you guys had a neighbor. Last time when I said they prayed together, some person, I'm not going to say who, just looked, they, they prayed, they prayed, and nobody was there. So I'm glad that you had a neighbor today, right? Um, what were they praising God about? They're praising God for who he was, for what he's done, right? And if you read Acts chapter 2, there's a whole passage, a whole sermon about the gospel and what Jesus has done. They're praising God for what he was doing at that moment, saving souls, saving lives, transforming them. You know, as we focus on this practice and this topic of worship today, I would actually like for us to look into a story of a character found in the Old Testament. But before we jump into this story, I want to 
ask you a question. Same question I've asked Pastor Daniel. Have you ever experienced a moment, a day, or maybe a season when you found it tremendously difficult or challenging to worship God? Have you ever experienced a moment, a day, or even a season when you found it difficult and challenging to worship God? Yesterday, I had a hard time worshiping God because on my Insta story poll, 47% of you thought I was ugly. All right? But thank God for 53% of you that are very godly, and you're saying you have been beautifully and wonderfully made, right? So thank you, 53% of you, 47% of you. I've screenshotted the picture of those that voted for yes. I'm ugly, all right? I'm going to remember that forever. Maybe on a Sunday, you're on your way to church. You have a heated argument with your spouse, maybe your child or children, or maybe everybody in the car, right? And you come to church, Pastor Daniel, and say, hey, guys, with this smile, let's stand and worship God. You're like, I am not in the mood to worship God right now. You found it challenging, difficult. Maybe during the week, it wasn't going so well spiritually for you. It's time to worship, right? And then you're just, you're not feeling right. You're feeling a little guilty. Your conscience is a little shaking. You're like, oh, I don't know. I'm kind of finding it challenging, difficult to worship him. Maybe things weren't going well for your business, for your work. Maybe things were slow. Maybe it was on the brink of losing not only your business, but your job, your career. And you found it challenging and difficult for you to worship God. Maybe it was a season of loss. Maybe you lost a loved one. Maybe you experienced a miscarriage. Maybe a relationship didn't pan out the way that you would have hoped it to. And you found it challenging and difficult to worship God. Maybe it was unanswered prayers. You've been praying and praying, but to no avail and you're discouraged. And you found it difficult and challenging to worship God. And there's a myriad of reasons why we may have experienced the difficulty and challenge to worship God. So again, have you ever experienced a moment, a day, or a season of your life when it was difficult for you to worship God? You know, today we'll be looking at a man who had tremendous loss in every way, but yet he still chose to worship God. In the eyes of the world, if anyone reads his story, he may have been, quote-unquote, justified to seize his worship unto God. And you may have already figured this out, but we will be looking at the story of Job, at least the beginning of his story. And the way that we'll be going about this message, message is that we'll be going over the first chapter, the whole chapter of Job chapter 1, and I'm going to be breaking that down into four sections. And then I'll close the message by giving you a reflection as well as some observations found in this passage. Let's go over the first section. In verses 1 through 6, we we learn a bit about Job. All right, let me read for you um, verses 1 through 6. I'm so sorry. Let me flip my Bible there. I forgot I didn't write it. I wrote it for you guys, but I didn't write it for myself. So I'm going to need scripture. Here we go. Verses 1 through 6, we learn a bit about Job. It says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. 
Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. His sons used to go and hold the feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. It's supposed to be one through five, I'm sorry. We're going to stop there, right? We read here what? That Job was blameless. He was upright. He was a God-fearing man. He avoided evil. He was fruitful in many ways. He was blessed with 10 children, seven sons, and three daughters, whom he cared about and he loved dearly. It says that he would rise up in the morning early to give up burnt offerings to God just in case that they sinned against God in their hearts. We read that Job was also very blessed, that he was wealthy. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 pairs of oxen, 500 female donkeys. And it didn't just say many servants. It said very many servants. Job was fruitful. He was wealthy. He loved his children. He loved his family. He was a God-honoring and God-fearing man. Now, why did they spend time, verse 1 through 5, to mention all this about Job? Number one, it's to show that what Job was going to experience had nothing to do with sin. It had nothing to do with misconduct in his life. That's the first reason. The second reason I believe the author is laying out and, and talking about Job in this way is to set the scene for what's about to happen next. And we go into the second section of this passage in verses 6 through 12. This is, what it, this is what we read. We read an interaction that takes place between God and Satan. Verse 6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Verse 7, The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there was no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. We read here that both angelic beings and Satan have come to present themselves before God. And God asked Satan, where are you coming from? And Satan's answer to God is what? From roaming the earth. What is Satan doing roaming the earth? Is he taking a nice stroll admiring the creation of God? He's not doing that. The reason why Satan is roaming the earth here is found in 1 Peter 5.8. 
It says your adversary, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Why? Seeking someone to devour. Satan is roaming the earth because he's seeking someone to devour, seeking someone to destroy. And God asked Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And God doesn't just stop there with that question. He goes on to kind of humble brag about Job, right? God says, hey, this man, there's no one like him. He's blameless. He's upright. He's God-fearing and he avoids evil. As I was reading this, it kind of reminded me of my mom, right? She would humble brag about my brother. My brother did so well in high school. I don't know how he did that. He would hang out all night, come late. After hanging out with his friends, and he would get like a 4.2 overall GPA at the end of high school. How does he do that? I have no idea. He got really high score in the SAT. You know, he got scholarships to all these colleges. They wanted him to come to their school, right? He ended up in Berkeley, graduating with high honors. He had all these, these, I don't know what you call them, these ropes and stuff like that all over his neck. Graduated with two two degrees, not two degrees, one, how does that work? He graduated poly and, and sociology and communications. Like he's got like two majors, okay? He graduated two majors, high honors, Berkeley, all that stuff. My mom is not even humble bragging. She's just bragging, right? She's just bragging like, this is my son. And then she started bragging about me once I became a pastor. That was the only thing that she was able to tell people. My second son, he became a pastor, all right? That's as far as it gets. But one note to make here about God questioning Satan, have you considered my servant Job, is this. God isn't asking Satan to test or to tempt Job. He's not doing that. Rather, what God is doing here, he's calling out what he knows already. When God is questioning Satan, have you considered Job? Have you considered my servant Job? What he's essentially doing is saying, I already know that you've been considering. I already know that you have been noticing, that you have been looking for ways to attack my servant Job. And that's what God is doing. He already knows what Satan has in mind, and God is just bringing that out, and he's initiating that conversation. And at this moment, Satan starts accusing Job, and accusing is what Satan does best. Revelations 12.10 states, For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down, the one who accuses them, accuses them before God day and night. This is what Satan does. He goes into the presence of God, and he just accuses you and me day and night. This is his job, right? He's looking to devour us. He's looking to destroy us. And one way he does that is by accusing us to God day and night. How does Satan accuse Job here? He accuses Job of being God-fearing because of all the possessions, because of all the blessings that God has given to him. Satan is telling God, God, the only reason why Job is honoring you and God-fearing you and avoiding evil is because of how you blessed him. It's because of all the things that he has and all the things that you've given to him. Essentially, what Satan is accusing Job of is having a consumer mentality, right? Having a shallow devotion to God, all contingent, all based on the fact of what God has given to him. All his possessions, all his blessings, and that's the only reason why that Job is God-fearing and honoring before him. 
So Satan is telling God what? Take that all away from him. Watch and see. He'll stop being God-fearing. He'll stop avoiding evil. He'll start cursing you. And at this time, as they're having this conversation, God allows Satan to go and test and tempt Job. And we read at verse 12, what once he's given permission, it says that Satan just, boom, he departs. He departs. And then we go to the third section, verses 13 and 19. This is when all the calamity happens. This is when all the spiritual attack happens. This is when Satan is on the move to devour Job. Starting in verse 13, it states this. It says, now on that day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding besides them. And the Sabians attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, while he was still, while this servant is telling him, dude, your oxen, all gone, man. Your servants, killed. While this servant is still speaking, it says that another servant also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 17, while he was still speaking, here comes another news. Another also came and said the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. For the fourth time, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house, and behold, the great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Church, essentially, Job loses everything. In a split moment, Job loses everything. Apart from a handful of his servants, and his wife, he loses everything. He loses all his possessions. Pretty much 99% of his servants are all killed away. And his children are all killed. They all die in a split moment. Church, how would you respond to a situation like this? How would you respond having found out that you lost everything? How would I respond having found out that my loved one, that my daughter has just died? How would we respond? I've never experienced something like this ever before in my life, but I think I can somewhat assume that I would be super sad, super mad, angry, and even bitter if I'm going to be honest, right? But how does Job respond? We read in verse 20, it says, Then Job arose and tore his robe, and he shaved his head. We learned a couple of weeks ago, you know, Pastor Jeff Hyun letting us know, you know, ancient Near East, them tearing the robe, it represented them, their, their grief. Their heart was being ripped out of them. He's in pain. He's in mourning. He's grieving 
at this moment. He's shaving his head. That's, his, that's just a representation that, hey, I'm in a season of mourning and loss right now. His response here is quite expected. He's grieving. He's mourning. He's tearing his robe, and he's pretty much saying, like, man, just leave me alone. But then it goes on to say, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. It says he fell to the ground and he worshipped. And this was his worship song. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It says that Joe fell to the ground and he worshiped God. And at the end of verse 21, he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. To be honest with you, and to be quite frank, I don't know if worship would have been my first response. I don't know about me praising God at the moment, having found out that I've lost loved ones, that I've lost everything that I've cared about. But this was Job's initial response. You know, I've shared with you already, I've never experienced anything like this before, but this kind of reminded me of high school. Um, I was dating somebody, right, in high school. I think I was like a sophomore at that time. Um, I, I think my heart, like I gave, this, I gave my heart to this, this person. I don't, know if Deb, I don't know if you know about this or not, but now you know, okay? Um, but like I was like almost in love, right? It was like my, that's not even serious. It was high school, right? But I, for whatever reason, I just really liked this person. And then she started ignoring me. We were together. She started ignoring me, and then she broke up with me. My heart was ripped out of my heart. Okay, it was that bad. And I remember at that time, too, that my family was going through a lot of difficulties. I shared with you before that there was a moment and a season in my life where I thought I was never going to see my brother again. And he's like the closest person to me is my brother. Right, And all this was going on, and I didn't worship God. I actually cursed the girl out, number one. You know what the crazy thing was? I was trying to evangelize to this girl, and then I cursed her out at the end, right? It's just, I don't know how that works, okay? I cursed her out, and then I cursed God. So worship for me was not the initial response, like, okay, I praise you, God, right? I'm going to fall down on the ground. So again, I, it's, just, it's just crazy. It's just, I, I can't fathom just... Just Job's response and just falling to the ground and worshiping him, and worshiping God. And it, just, and it doesn't end there. The chapter, chapter 1 of Job ends this way. In verse 22, it says, through all this, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. He didn't sin. He didn't blame God. What did he do? He worshiped God. One thing we find out here was that Satan was wrong and God was right. Job's devotion to God was not contingent upon God blessing him. It was not contingent upon the possessions that Job had or that God allowed him to have. It's not that Job was worshiping God for the circumstances and the situations that he was facing. Rather, Job was worshiping God in the midst of the circumstances and the situation that he's facing. If you read the rest of the book of Job, you'll find in Job 13, 15, you'll find Job telling one of his friends, he says, though he slay me, though God were to slay me, I will still hope in him. I will still trust in him. And this is where Job is able to worship God. God. Why? Because of the hope and because of the trust that he has in God and who he is. 
One thing that we have to remember, a lot, of, a lot of times I think what's helpful for us in a Christian life is that even in the moments that we're facing difficulty, even in the moments that we're facing hurt and pain and loss in our lives, it's good for us to look back and see how God has been faithful in our lives back, back then in the past. It's to remember that in this moment who God is, his character his person, his promises, his truth, remembering how God has led you through that season, remembering how God has been faithful, remembering how God has been good even in those moments when you have experienced low moments of your life. Though he slay me, yet I will still hope and trust in him. Job's devotion to God was not contingent upon the blessings of God, the possessions that God has given to him. And here's something I want us to reflect upon, church, and I'm coming to a close. Is our devotion to God, our commitment to worship him, is it based on how good life is or is it based on how good God is? Is it contingent upon how good my life is or upon how good God is? Is our affection, our devotion, and our worship to God, is it affected by the circumstances and the situations that we experience in life? Is it based on the blessings and the answered prayers that God has given to us? Or would we say as his children, as his followers, my devotion and my commitment to worship God will remain steadfast no matter what God allows in my life because he is good and because he's worthy of my worship. I know who God is I have experienced his goodness and his faithfulness. I want you to reflect upon that today, church. Is my worship and my devotion to God contingent upon how good my life is or is it really contingent upon how good God is? Here are some observations as we close. First observation is this, church. You and I, we're all vulnerable. We're all susceptible to trials and attacks of Satan. In the way that Job was vulnerable, in the way that Job was susceptible to these trials, to this loss, to attacks of Satan, so are you and I. 1 Peter 5.8, it's not just for some people, but it's for all believers. Believe it or not, the devil is prowling, prowling around like a roaring lion, looking and seeking for someone to devour. That's including you and me. And one way that the Satan does this is not by getting you to question God's existence, but he does this by getting you to question God's character. It's not about is God alive, is God real, but it really comes down to is God good? Is God loving? If God is so good, if God is so loving, why would, we, why would he allow the suffering in your life? One way, again, that Satan attacks us is getting us to not question about God's existence, but to really question about God's character and who he is. 
You see, no one is immune. I'm not immune. You're not immune. We're all susceptible to trials in our lives and the attacks of Satan. Even Jesus said, hey, you're going to face trials of many kinds in this world. But he doesn't stop there. He says, fear not, for I have overcome the world. He says, fear not, for I have overcome the world. Yes, we are vulnerable. Yes, we are susceptible to Satan's attacks, but God is there. The one who has overcome Satan, we can cling to him and find strength in him to withstand the schemes of the enemy. Amen, church. Number two, Satan is looking to hinder your devotion and my worship to God. Do you remember when Jesus was tempted or he tested in, in the wilderness for 40 days? Yeah, you know, Satan tests him. He's like, hey, why don't you turn these stones into, into you know, like, like bread? You're hungry, right? But you get to the end, what, what is it that Satan really wants? Satan wants Jesus to bow down to him and worship him. One thing that Satan does not want is people turning to God and worshiping him. Satan wants worship for himself. You know what the crazy thing is? I shared this months ago in a sermon. I was, I was studying a little bit, researching a little bit about the satanic church satanic cult. And they're not really about worshiping Satan. You know what they're really about? They're really about living your best life here on earth now. That's what it's about. It's not about like, hey, worship Satan. Satan's almighty. Let's go to Satan. Commit our lives to Satan. Saying, no. Pretty much he's saying, you are your own God. You live your life however you please and however you want. That is the ultimate goal. That is what they believe in. The crazy thing is that Satan is going to try to hinder our devotion and our worship to God. How does he do that? Again, he's going to get us to question God's character. Is God loving? Is God good? Is God faithful? And this is what Satan tried to do in Job's life, right? Hey, I'm going to take all your blessings away. Is God really good? He allowed, he allowed for you to lose all your, your wealth, all your, your, your possessions, He's allowed your children to all die. Is God really good? Is God really loving? See, Satan uses circumstances to attack God. But I think a lot of times God uses circumstances to draw us closer to himself. For us to see how faithful he really is. For us to see how good he really is. For us to cling to him, even when we don't understand all the things that he allows in our lives. To remember the truth and the promises of God that what? God is always with us to the end of the age, that he will never leave us, nor will he forsake us. The crazy thing about the book of Job is this church. From the beginning, God was there. At the end, God is there. God was watching Job through this whole time that he's going through all the pain, all the grief, all the mourning, even in moments when God seems silent, he's not. He's there watching over you. He is there watching over you. He is there in the beginning, he's there throughout, and he's going to be there in the end. Last, Job had the right perspective. Job had the right perspective. He said, naked I came into this world, and naked I'll leave it. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Job understood something, that every good gift that he has received was from God. 
Every good gift that he received was from God. There was no sense of entitlement. There was no sense of, hey, as God's child, I should be getting all these blessings. I should be getting all these possessions. No. He understood that every gift that he has received was a gift. It was a grace that was shown to him. Can I be honest with you, church? God owes us nothing. God owes us nothing. But we owe God everything. We owe God everything. Why? Simply because of this one fact. Because he gave everything for us. Because he gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins so that you and I can be forgiven and have a living hope to spend eternity with God forever. That reason alone, church, should cause us to respond in worship to God. Not because of all the good things he's given to us, not because of all the possessions that he allows us to have and all the blessings and all the answered prayers, no. But because of one thing, but because God has given to us his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to forgive us so that we can be redeemed. Amen, church? And I'm going to close with a, with a story. You know, blessed be your name. It was kind of too late for me to ask Pastor Dan, say, hey, can you sing blessed be your name? There was a season of my life, um, like it was like maybe like six, eight years, where blessed be your name was my anthem. It was my anthem. And the reason why it was my anthem is because six, eight years of my life during that season was my most difficult moments of my life. Again, I've shared part of my story with some of you, but it was a season where I questioned life. It was a season where I thought, like, maybe it's not worth living anymore, right? It was a season where, man, like, I felt like I was the stupidest person in the world, that I didn't matter, that God didn't love me, that I was a pain to God, that it would be better for me to just die than having God be, you know, his witness being messed up because of just how bad I really am. The crazy thing is, during this season, I was a worship leader. <laughs> I was a part of a ministry, and I had to lead worship, I think, four times a week, Wednesday night, Friday night, Saturday morning, and Sunday, twice, so five times a week. And I can tell you this, church, I did not want to worship God. I was not in a place where I was like, yeah, God is so good. He's so awesome. I was in a place where every day felt like survival mode for me. How do I survive this one day? How do I go about this day where, like, I can just get by and just get through? At the time, I was attending seminary. They had me take a test. I had all the students take a test. And my anxiety level was off the charts that it was concerning for my professors. Like, what's going on in your life? I couldn't tell them. <laughs> and I think at that time, I was literally clinically depressed. All I wanted to do was sleep. And, because, and I wanted to sleep because I wanted to just dream. I wanted to escape reality. Dreaming was my way of just kind of like escaping the pain, whatever else that I was experiencing. But I remember this song, Blessed Be Your Name. I'm leading worship five times a week. 
And I told God, God, I don't want to fake it. I don't want to go up there and just, oh, do all the motions and like, yeah. But I also told God, God, I still want to worship you, though. Because despite of what I was going through and I was experiencing at that time, I know, I know God was good. I know God was loving. I've experienced his grace. But it was just in that moment, in that season, circumstances, situations, the environment that I was in, it was just very toxic. And it was distorting the image of God. It was distorting who God really was and how he really felt about me, what he really thought about me. And so I remember leading worship, this will be my anthem, say, God, even though I walk through this desert, even though, like, I don't have anything, my life sucks, God, I still choose to worship you. I still choose to bless your name because you are good. You are worthy. You are faithful. You are loving. My prayer, Rooftop Church, is this, has Dr. Jessica shared last week, I really pray that we would be a generation of worshipers whose devotion and commitment to worship God would not be wavered by the circumstances that we encounter in our lives, but that we may be those who stand out like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even though he does not, even though if God does not deliver us from this fiery furnace, we will not bow down to your idol. We will worship God and him alone that we will be like them and say, you know what, no matter what fire that I may go through, no matter what valley that I may be facing, I will declare the praises of my God and come out saying, blessed be the name of the Lord, for he is good, for he is worthy of my praise. Amen, church. That is my prayer for us today.